Hey, howdy, space nerds. Thanks for tuning in each week as we explore space exploration. Well, don't let the conversation stop when you reach the end of this episode. Let's keep chatting online. We've launched a new Facebook page to host discussions and share the latest space news. You can find us by searching Are We There Yet podcast or visiting facebook.com slash Mars. I'll see you there. From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. When it comes to taking a clear picture of the night sky, it helps to be isolated. That's why astronomers have telescopes in remote locations, away from light pollution and at a high altitude. But sometimes ground-based telescopes aren't enough. Well, there's a handful of space-based telescopes, but resources on those machines are limited. So somewhere in between is SOFIA. It's a modified 747SP jumbo jet that hauls an 8-foot-wide telescope into the stratosphere. And I got to fly on it. Before we go any further, I have to make a confession. This is the coolest assignment I've ever been on. SOFIA normally operates on the West Coast, but it made a special trip to Florida to chase Triton, that's the moon of Neptune, as it passed in front of a distant star. This is called an occultation. It's kind of like an eclipse. And astronomers wanted to measure what the atmosphere of Triton is made out of based on what light was being filtered through the atmosphere. So I went up on Sophia's first mission from Florida. Now, this is a practice run to make sure operators could track Triton that they would later do in the week. I spent about 12 hours with Sophia and the crew, nine of it in the air. My trip started with a pretty scary safety briefing and then a not-so-scary mission briefing. All right. I'll go ahead and violate, violate uh, fighter pilot protocol here in brief sitting down for this last part. Uh, keep the tab dancing to a minimum. Uh, on the airfield here, the, uh, we don't have any constraints on the taxiways. One thing that we're doing a little bit different uh, when we operate on the parallel taxiway November. That's our pilot, Dean Neely. After we went over every aspect of the mission, we headed to the plane. So when you walk on board, Sophia, you're immediately met with all of these different computers and consoles and workstations throughout the main flight deck. At the back end of the plane, there's this blue protruding mechanism out there, and that's actually the telescope. On the other side of this pressurized bulkhead wall is the actual telescope, what collects the light, the eight-foot reflector that is outside of the airplane. And what happens is when Sophia gets to altitude, this door opens up, uh, which allows the telescope to collect light, uh, but there's this pressure bulkhead that keeps us from getting too cold since it's like negative 60 degrees Celsius out there. And there's all these different workstations and computers and TV, and everything is hustling and bustling. And then there's this spiral staircase that takes you up to the flight deck where I got to meet our pilot, our co-pilot, and our engineer as well. And at the front of the plane, down on the main flight deck, is what they call NASA First Class. That's where they put us journalists and visiting scientists. Um, There was no food or beverage service, but uh, it was very comfortable. And one thing that they kept telling us is because we were at such a high altitude, you have to drink a lot of water, um, about a bottle of water every hour. So that that's quite a bit of water. Um, and if anybody knows who listens to this podcast, I'm very fond of airborne bathrooms. And let me tell you, when you drink that much water, you're very intimate with that bathroom on Sophia. 
Shortly after takeoff, I had the chance to speak with Eric Beckland. He's the chief scientific advisor on SOFIA, and some call him the founder of infrared astronomy. He explained why we were flying so high. We're flying up to 42,000 feet, first of all, so that we can get a clear view, no clouds. Uh, this plane normally goes up uh, to make observations uh, where water vapor is really a problem. Uh, the occultation that we're doing tonight, well, we're actually practicing tonight, but uh, we really, uh, the clouds are the big uh, factor, and so we're trying to get up above the clouds. We also want to fly, pinpoint the exact point of where uh, the occultation will occur. So flying actually helps out a lot. Every detail of this flight is planned out to the minute. So we made these passes across the Atlantic. They're called legs, and they lasted for about 60 minutes. And during these legs, different astronomers would take different observations. Now, when it was time to track Neptune in hopes to find Triton, I snuck onto the main science deck to watch the astronomers work. Looking at any one of the screens on the science floor, you could see Neptune in all its glory right there in front of us. Oh, so cool. Now, Bernie Welp has the job of keeping the telescope pointed at the right object. He's Sophia's telescope operator, and I spoke with him in between legs about what he does each mission. Well, the joke, the inside joke, is that the telescope operator's job is to protect the telescope from the astronomer. But, you know, the telescope is just this big, giant, complicated thing, and um, no two telescopes are quite alike. Um, they have a lot of control systems, a lot of mechanisms, a lot of complicated optics, a lot of very, very fine tolerances that we have to tune things to. And so it's really kind of a full-time job just to keep the telescope operating, keep the light coming through so that it exits at the, at the, at the rear end and goes into the instrument. Uh, so uh, on Sophia, the added dimension is that the telescope is not located at a single longitude and latitude and altitude. It's, it's moving all the time. So the, the arithmetic, the, the math that we have to go through to figure out where the telescope needs to point, how to keep it pointed in a certain direction, uh, dovetails with flight planning, you know, that the flight planners do. And there's a lot of work that leads up to a flight like this. Probably, I probably spend two hours on the ground uh, for every hour I spend in the sky just negotiating with the scientists and with the flight planners to make sure that we're pointing the plane in the right direction. Um, and then uh, there's an awful lot of complicated observing modes. Our telescopes in the modern day do not point directly at an object to just stare at it. They are um, moving the telescope away from the object and back to the object in order to compare background noise with the signal noise. So there are a lot of... Um, a lot of mechanisms and a lot of processes to keep track of. Now, the planning of these missions is very complicated and is choreographed to the minute, like I said. Now, planners have to take into account so many variables, the speed of the plane, the heading, the weather. It's fascinating how everything is so well organized. Now, keeping this mission on track is the job of the mission director. And since this is such a complex mission, Sophia has two. Karina Lepic is one of those mission directors, and she took some time during the flight to talk about what goes into successfully tracking objects in the distant sky when you're flying at Mach 0.85. Since she was working, and she's pretty important on this mission, I had to chat with her over the comms loop in case someone needed her immediate attention. 
We spoke on the way to our first science leg, so this is about 10 p.m. Eastern time from the flight deck. Kind of walk me through what goes through the, the planning process for something like this. What do you have to do to, to plot this? I mean, we're, we're in the air for, what, nine hours, right? A typical, a typical mission is about 10 hours. We are, I think we are the only vehicle that truly does stellar navigation. Um, we are literally navigating by the stars. As we follow a, a star that we're looking at or an astronomical object that we're looking at, we slowly turn the plane one degree at a time to keep that object in our telescope. We're an Altaz telescope, which means that we point the telescope by um, azimuth, so the direction the plane is heading, um, minus 90 degrees because our telescope is pointed out the side of the plane, and then altitude of the telescope. We can point between 20 degrees and 60 degrees. So we point, we point the telescope and then drive the plane so that we keep that object in the telescope. What kind of coordination goes on between you folks downstairs and the folks up here in the flight deck to, to make that work? There's a lot of real-time communication and cooperation as well as a lot of planning ahead of time. During flight, it's a lot of the mission director calling up to pilots saying, one degree left, one degree left. And for, for some objects, it's the same true heading for a long time, and so we don't make a lot of heading adjustments. Um, some objects turn rather quickly, and we're making a one degree heading adjustment every minute. There are some objects that we look at where we're turning the plane 90 degrees in an hour and a half. So we're literally adjusting the airplane by one degree every minute. And over an hour and a half, we've made a 90-degree turn. And so what are some of the objects that we're looking at tonight? I know this is kind of a test run for the occultation. 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 <laughs> I'll get it right. I'll get it right by the end of this trip. But what, what, um, what are you actually focused on for, for this? And, uh, and how do you go about navigating uh, for this phenomenon that's about to, or this event that's going to happen? So the occultation event, I'm just going to fasten my seatbelt here because... I don't see the sign on yet, but it doesn't hurt. I will do the same. If I see you fastening your seatbelt, I'm going to fasten my seatbelt. I'm a little bit more um, more cautious with my seatbelt use than, than other people. But Sorry, the occultation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm more worried about safety, too. <laughs> so what, what kind of goes into into looking at that object? Um, I mean, you, you pretty much have a sense of, of where it's going to be, right? Or is there some surprises along the way? So there are a lot of different... Uh, telescopes that are looking at this object, um, that are uh, looking at Triton and how it's moving, and the stars that this, uh, the star that Triton is going to pass in front of, to figure out where exactly on the Earth the shadow is going to be. So an occultation is a lot like an eclipse. Um, a lot of people are familiar with the eclipse that just happened, where you have a center line of the eclipse that makes a path that's you know so wide and and, and so long. That's the shadow going across the Earth. It's the same thing with the occultation, only instead of the moon and the sun, we have Triton and a star. So we have a lot of telescopes looking at those two objects to figure out exactly where that path is going to be, that center line of totality. They're actually making small adjustments up until I think the, the, last, the last update on the location. I think we're supposed to get six hours before takeoff. Oh, wow. So that's, that's real close. Yeah. And actually, when we did a Pluto occultation two years ago, we got an adjustment of where, where and when we needed to be in flight. 
and actually allow, had designed a flight plan that allowed us to adjust our path in flight. And we adjusted our flight path by about 100 miles um, to change the location uh, of, and uh, the location of, of where we're going to be. We don't expect that we'll have to do that on Thursday, but we have we have the personnel who will be on board and, and can do that if, if we need to. So right now we have where we think we need to be. We have a location and a time, and that's what we're aiming for. But we have a flight plan that allows us to modify that in real time if we need to. I love occultation events. Mm. Um, they're, they're technically challenging, and it, it really it's a unique thing for Sophia to be able to do to be able to put a telescope where you want it, when you want it. There's no other telescope that can do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's got to be, aside from the advantages of being above the water vapor and not having that interfere with the pictures, the fact that you can move this bird from, I mean, she came from the West Coast just a few days ago and, and is here and ready for this event, right? Right, and the, uh, the Pluto occultation that we did um, happened over New Zealand two years ago. And it w was during the time that we were in New Zealand looking at the Southern Hemisphere skies. Um, so we took, you know, a couple flights and did this exact same thing. We did one flight that was kind of a test flight. Uh, make sure we knew, operationally, we knew what we were doing. Scientifically, we knew what we were doing. And then we had the occultation flight from New Zealand. And this one is from Daytona. What makes an astronomical phenomenon a good candidate to observe it? We have a number of different instruments that look at objects in different ways. They look at different wavelengths of light and different resolutions. So we're, a, we're an infrared telescope, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. Um, the instruments we have on board tonight are um, near-infrared and visible. So on that end of, of the spectrum, um, we have instruments that go all the way to... going to change from from wavelength into, there are a lot of different nomenclatures for things, mm -hmm. um, all the way into um, almost microwave. In fact, when we're flying with one of our instruments, we can't use the microwaves we have on board because the instrument would see it. Really? And interfere with their, their observations. So no hot pockets. No. <laughs> <laughs> and there was one flight I forgot, and I showed up with my leftovers. I'm like, I can't heat up my casserole. Uh, oh, cold oh, casserole. No. <laughs> forgot a sandwich. Um, so we, we really have a, a wide range between all of our instruments that we really have a, a wide range of, uh, of different ways that we can look at um, astronomical objects. And depending on what a particular observer wants to observe, um, a particular instrument would be the right choice for them. And I, I think that's worth talking about a bit because that took me by surprise when, when I first um, had the tour of Sophia is that it is not one instrument all the time. It's kind of like this modular thing that you can slide different pieces into. Well, right? Sophia is a telescope. Okay. And so the telescope, a telescope is essentially a light bucket. Okay. It collects light and gathers it into one spot and puts it somewhere. And you can change where it puts it. So, and that's what we're doing by switching out instruments. You're putting it, you're putting the light, you're gathering the light and putting it into, tonight we're gathering the light and putting it into um, flight cam and hippo and also our um, focal plane imager instrument which we use every night for um, to, to use the telescope but we're also using it as a science instrument so we have three science instruments that we're using for the occultation 
All a telescope does is it collects light and puts it somewhere. So you can swap out instruments and look at that light in different ways. Gotcha. But I, I guess that means that there are different technological advances that can be put in. So, so, it, so Sophia is, is, will never be outdated then, right? She can, she can constantly be updated with newer instruments that are reading the light that's coming in. Exactly. And that is one of the, another one of the advantages of Sophia is that we can be a testbed for instruments. So we're, we're a near-space observatory. It's kind of like having an observatory in space, not quite, but near space, mm. and we come home every night. So we can have instruments that are, are testing new technology before we, launch that, before we perfect it to launch it into space. It takes a long time to get an instrument ready um, to go into space, on a, and you don't want to send up something that is, you're not entirely sure how it's going to work, if it's going to work. So Sophia can be a good test bed for new instrumentation. What's been some of the coolest things you've seen while working uh, on Sophia? It's kind of an ironic answer for this flight series. Um, my favorite flight was the Pluto occultation in 2015. Um, I was the um, MD2 for that flight as well, and I'm MD2 for this series, um, because prior to being a mission director, I was a flight planner. So I'm very familiar with the flight planning software, the flight planning tools, how a flight plan is pieced together, how if you modify one piece of a flight plan, that affects the rest of it. So I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with that, and, and especially the one two years ago where we had the in-flight update, you know, the challenge of, okay, I've got this. I have 15 minutes to get Move. there <laughs> and switch it around. Um, that, that was my favorite flight. It was technically, technically challenging, technically interesting, um, scientifically interesting. Um, I, I, I like planets. Um, I'm a I'm a more of a solar system mm-hmm. kind of gal, um, and it was also very gratifying to see your results right then and there. Frequently, we take data and we give it to the scientist, and it can be a year before we before it's analyzed and published, and we really know what we what data we got. But with an occultation event like Pluto two years ago, we could actually see the star dimming. And so it was a, hey, we got there. We, you know, all the effort we've just spent the last five hours doing, we got it. Mm-hmm. And that was really, really a good feeling. It was a lot of, a lot of good teamwork um, that, that went into the, the planning process all the way up to the end. And that was, that was around New Horizon, right? So it was, it was Pluto fever. Right? Yes. Yeah. So the occultation happened two weeks prior to uh, New Horizon, the New Horizons flyby. So what that was able to do for us was all the previous occultations, all the previous Pluto occultations that had been observed, and all the future Pluto occultations that will be observed, we can use this to calibrate all of those to say, okay, this is what the occultation showed, and this is what the atmosphere was actually like as observed from New Horizons. So that was a a very scientifically worthwhile occultation to observe. And how did you get involved with Sophia? When did you start here? And, and um, I started with Sophia about six and a half years ago. Prior to that, I was doing various things. One of the things that I had done was uh, take care of a telescope at uh, Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station in Antarctica. What? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> how and did you land that gig? <laughs> <laughs> I raised my hand. <laughs> I'll do it. 
all winter over, sure. Yeah, that would have to be a little chilly, huh? Yeah, it was cold. Um, I have a new, I have a different level of cold than other people. <laughs> um, but I also grew up in Minnesota, so. Oh, so it's like the same thing. Well, so I, pretty close, right? One of my one of my summers there, my parents went to to northern Minnesota, and of course it was winter in Minnesota while it was summer down there. And my parents said, "Hey, it's colder here than where you are." It's like, yeah, it's summer here. <laughs> um, so I spent a year taking care of a telescope, um, doing all the the routine maintenance, um, the, the the routine care and feeding of that telescope, and. Of course, while you're down there, you you meet people, you talk to people, whatnot. Um, my husband had also wintered over um, with a different set of people, and we were at a at the American uh, Astronomical Society meeting one year, and just looking around. And a friend of his from one of his winters was at the Sophia booth, and so we were chatting, and we had a big sign up saying Sophia is hiring for the following positions. And I said, "Ooh, science flight planner. That sounds like fun." Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, yeah, you should apply. You'd be great. So I applied, and that's how I got to Sophia. Hmm. Um, you never know You never know what route is going to take you where, or who you're going to meet along the way, who then puts you in contact with mm-hmm. whoever. And what was your background in? Um, I have a bachelor's degree in physics from Kenyon College and a master's degree in astronomy from Swinburne University in Australia. So your advice to folks that are listening that want to pursue a career like this is raise your hand if they want to send you to Antarctica? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> when an opportunity comes up, take it. And what's ahead? You, six and a half years with Sophia. I mean, what do you hope that this this observatory can do in the future? And I, I think that uh, the observatory is set up well to continue doing great science into the future. Um, we've got a new science instrument that's going to be delivered in about a year and a half. Um, that will expand our capabilities even further and, you know, continue to explore our great universe. This was really fun. Yeah, so, thank you. Thank you for the time. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. That was Karina Lepic, Mission Director on SOFIA. A huge shout-out to the SOFIA crew for taking great care of me and the other journalists who had the amazing opportunity to fly, especially Nick and Beth on the public affairs team. Nick and Beth, thank you for setting me up with this. I was able to take some photos on board. I'll post those on our Facebook page. Be sure to give it a like. You can find it by searching Are We There Yet? Podcast. The conversation continues on Twitter. The show is at AWTYMars, and I'm at SpaceBrendan. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from the listeners of WMFE. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org slash space. And until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. 